Welcome to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Anamika Sharma, the lead character in the novel Baby G by Abba Dewesar, grows up in Delhi, India, studying quantum physics at school and sex when she's not in school. The story follows the life of a girl who sets her own rules in a culture that historically demands the opposite. Our conversation about Baby G begins with the author, Abba Dewesar, describing India, the place where she grew up and where the life of Anamika takes place. Um, well, the first thing that comes to my mind when I think of India is an enormous amount of diversity. And um, I think of it more, for example, like a continent, like Europe with its many countries and not like the U.S., a single country, because there are many different languages and you know, cuisines and, and even cultural differences, even among people who may, might share the same religion. And um, while Baby G is set in a, you know, in a single place and the entire novel takes place in Delhi, I did want to capture at least some of the different striations of Indian society. So, you know, caste is, uh, is sort of plays a role, but also class plays a role. And I wanted to have that and gender and age and, and how all those work out um, sort of show up in the book so that people get a sense of the, uh, of the layers um, that are prevalent in, in India. Can you define some of those layers for us, for those of us who, are n- who haven't been to India? Sure. Um, so this book is set at a time when, uh, due to certain political changes in the country, people become aware of caste once again in a way in which, you know, modern Indians had um, had not been aware for a while. Um, caste consciousness was going away. And the caste division is based on birth. So, you know, you're born of a certain caste and you remain in that caste. And uh, once upon a time, you know, uh, several hundred years ago when the uh, when cost was much more prevalent, you also got your profession or what you were doing in your life through your cost. So if you were a pre-son or you were, you were an educationist or you could be a warrior caste or you could be a business caste, um, and then one of the worst parts of the caste system was that if you ended up in the fourth caste, uh, the, you know, the lowest caste, you really had no opportunity, and that is not much way of moving out of that in life. And that was changed, uh, you know, the caste system was officially sort of abolished. That slowly started to change in modern India after India became independent in 1947. Well, two questions. One, in what time period is your book, Baby G, set? It's set in 1991, um, um, at a time when the government tried to enact some new legislation to change uh, something that we call the reservation system, which you could think of a little bit as, a, as affirmative action for the lower castes. That's always existed in India since India became independent in 47. But in 1990-91, they were, uh, you know, the government tried to make certain changes, or rather a particular politician tried to make certain changes. And that didn't go down very well with the population, especially in Delhi. And a lot of young students started to set themselves on fire in protest. Abba, how has the uh, system in India changed since 1991, as you're describing it? Well, the system itself hasn't changed. This legislation didn't go through in 1991, partly because of the student protests that happened. 
But one thing that I did notice was that when I was growing up, and I was, uh, you know, before 1991, I was not very aware of the cast of my classmates. I mean, I knew what, what my, you know, where my family came from, but I didn't know what anyone else uh, was, and I couldn't tell. But after the political changes, suddenly people became aware of caste in a new way. And one of the long-term changes in India has been that there are now political parties that are entirely caste-based in certain regions. And, uh, you know, we just didn't have that before. Do these parties have uh, a significant influence on the, on the shape and, and control of government? Uh, yes, not at the national level, uh, but at the local level where they operate in particular states, and some of these you know, states are hugely populated, they do have an enormous influence. Well, let's start putting your character, uh, Anamika, into position. Uh, her class, where she came from, her childhood. She's born of an, in an upper caste family, so she's a Brahmin, um, which is, was originally, once upon a time, the priestly caste. Um, but also, in terms of economic class, she's middle class. She's not wealthy. Her parents are working for the government, and they don't have all that much money. She says at some point that she doesn't, you know, they don't have a car, for example. And, you know, her father still has a two-wheeler Vespa type of scooter. And so one of the things uh, that somebody who hasn't been to India may not necessarily know is that, uh, that caste divisions don't necessarily coincide with class divisions. So economic class plays itself out too, and that you know could be you could find its equivalent probably in English society or in France or Europe, and and the fault lines of where caste and and class fall are not identical. So Anamika partakes of a middle class economic background, but a upper caste birth, and then of course she's young, and age uh, is tremendously important in Indian society and determines how you interact with those older than you and younger than you, and there are rules. And she, um, in the affairs she has and the things she does, she sort of breaks all these barriers in the book. What are the barriers? Um, in, you know, one of her affairs the, uh, where she specifically talks of coming of age uh, in, in, in the early part of the novel is uh, with an older woman that she meets. And, uh, she, you know, she says that she'd been taught to venerate her elders. Also, the, the title Baby G itself, G the suffix, is something that you use to convey respect to those older than you. And Anamika doesn't, you know, call older people uncle or auntie, which is one of the norms of Indian society. And she doesn't add, suddenly doesn't add G. And instead, she's called G by her maid, Rani, in the book. So um, she's sort of turning the rules within which she has to live on their head uh, by transgressing, uh, you know, as I mentioned, uh, the the age barrier. But then also the caste barrier. As an upper caste, she shouldn't be having, you know, any intimate relations. Well, before marriage and at that age, she shouldn't be having intimate relationships with anybody. But she particularly has them with somebody um, of a lower caste as well in the book. And uh, so she transgresses that boundary as well. Her age is about 16? That's right. So where does this story come from? Is it you? No, it's not autobiographical. Where it comes from, I definitely wanted to set something in the Mundell Commission era. And the backdrop, uh, so the backdrop was very important to me. The time period was very important to me. And um, subsequently, because caste was something that young Indians my age were becoming conscious of or became conscious of as a result of the political developments at the time, um, the caste of everybody in the book is highlighted. And then I also, I guess, just wanted to break taboos and sort of 
just to spice up my own writing. And so that's where the specific, um, you know, the affairs and the, the same gender affairs come from. So to put it into perspective, you're now 30 years old. Yes, I'm 31. Which would have made you 16 or 17 in 1991. Yes, and um, I was... Um, Actually, at that time, uh, you know, I mean, when I was a little bit younger than what she is at this age, I was already writing and I knew that I wanted to write, you know, books or novellas. So I was very preoccupied with uh, with literature even at that time. But when this Mundell Commission thing happened, uh, you know, there was no way we, we couldn't be aware of it. And there were there were a lot of heated debates around it. And that sort of stayed with me. And I think now, when you know, when I decided I was writing, going to write a book set in India, I, I decided that I wanted it to be about that time period. The Mandal Commission was the commission in 1991 that attempted to establish a greater level of equality. Yes, it actually was formed a little bit before, but I think the the suggestions were made in uh, you know late 90, early 91, or, or thereabouts. And um, I think the theory behind it was was great. It did want to uh, wanted to change the way affirmative action was going to work, but the problem was that it was not. Um, it wanted to change exactly how the lower costs were defined, and so one of the problems was that it was now going to include as lower costs certain costs that were dominant economically in their region, and so you know it was it was much more political than than just something to raise um, the, the, the situation of the lower costs. Uh, so people in certain states who belonged um, to a lower cost but had economic power jockeying to be included on that list, um, which is what caused a lot of problems. I mean, it was very politically motivated, and, the, and that motivation seemed to be quite clear to a lot of people who objected to it. So defining the classes still identified them and separated them from each other. Uh, d- yeah, well, defining the castes, but the problem is that because of India's diversity, somebody who might be a lower caste person in one state and of a social and, and of an economically lower class at the same time might belong to a much higher economic class in a different state. So it isn't easy to to just uh, decide who belongs to a lower caste and who doesn't. And so a lot of the um, issues surrounding the Mandal Commission was exactly who's going to be on that list, and not so much as to, you know, what will happen once you're on that list, because you did obviously had lots of benefits if you were on that list. Your primary character in your book is a 16-year-old woman, yeah. and you're casting her in a position that... Um, is it fair to say unusual or atypical for 16-year-old women at that time? Yes, and I think, uh, it, well, definitely unusual. I mean, she's an exceptional character, and I wanted to have somebody who was um, exceptional or almost difficult to imagine. But she's, she's bold, and she's emboldened by um, her studies. Um, she's a bit of a nerd, and it's a quantum mechanics class that sort of inspires her to go out and decide to sort of conquer love and life around her. But she is exceptional, but I think in one sense she's typical of a teenager anywhere. You have, a, you know, at that age, uh, because of all the changes happening within you, and uh, you have a certain level of boldness and certainty that you probably never have again in your life, and at the same time you're still young. And I wanted to capture that contradiction. That's why I wanted the, the main character at that time to, to be at that age. By publishing the book 
and creating your main character, being bold, do you have an intention to set an example for young Indian women? An example, per se, I mean, uh, her as somebody to follow, not necessarily, but her as somebody who, who has taken it in her own hands to decide what she wants to do with her life? Possibly, yes. So in a much broader sense than the specifics of her story. In this edition of Radio Curious, we're talking with Abba the Vesar about her new book, Baby G, a story about a 16-year-old woman with many explorations and ideas in India in 1991. You're listening to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Abba, is there a section of Baby G that you could read for us? Certainly, since we've been uh, talking about caste, I wanted to give a very different, uh, you know, insider's view of, of, of caste, not in huge um, social and anthropological terms, but just uh, as, it's, as it feels to a young girl who's growing up within the system. So this is from the very early section of Baby G. Indians, myself included, must immediately place everyone we meet. We are a nation of taxonomists. It must be in our genes because of the caste system. There are categories for everything educated or not, foreign car or not, Brahmin or Banya or what, English-speaking or not, meat-eating or not, if vegetarian, then whether an egetarian or strict, if strict, then too strict to eat Western desserts with egg or not. All this in the case of women helps predict whether they might be led astray. In the case of men, whether they will misbehave with women given half a chance, take bribes, support their parents in old age, and on and on. The system works. It is a science thousands of years old that has been taken to the level of a fine art. I often scorned it, but if I had to put my hand on my heart, I'd have to admit that I operated by it. It was natural for me to classify people at first sight without even being aware of it. Love happens on the edges. It happens when one can't place someone. So does hate. India was an enigma and correspondingly rife with possibility, rich in her meanings and bountiful. Abba, you say that your book is not biographical, but it's certainly a reflection of your experience growing up in India. Right, and, and I guess what I mean by saying that it's not autobiographical is that the stories between the individual people are not based on anything. I mean, and I don't even mean not my life, but I mean even the lives of anybody that I knew. Um, so the characters are, are you know, cr created in my imagination, and the, and the stories that are happening between them are are a product of my imagination. But there are definitely several aspects of the book that are that are grounded in reality in my memories of Delhi at that time and also, you know, the political backdrop which uh which colors in some way a large part of the novel um you know did take place and was experienced uh, by me and by other people of my generation. So in that sense, um there is a real element to it. Uh just I don't know that the word autobiography would apply. Well, let's put you into, if we can, your place or position in India. How would you do that? Um, it's very different today when I go back than it was when I was growing up there. Um, because when I, when I go to India now, the single most important thing um, uh, that, that people look at is that I have come back from the U.S., that I live in the U.S., and uh, in, as is the case in a lot of other societies, not just India, a, li a little bit even in Europe, but definitely in other parts of the world, in the third world, if you 
live in America, you are somehow marked by it in a in a very big way, and uh, the older rules of your society may or may not apply to you anymore. I mean, I'm given a lot more leeway, whether in the way I dress or in you know what I do or uh, don't do. Say, even at a typical marriage ceremony for a cousin, I may not show up in Indian clothes, and nobody will ever take it amiss. They'll just say, "Oh, she lives abroad." So. At this moment, my identity in India as an Indian is is very marked by the fact that I live elsewhere, um, and that's my that's the sole position that I have in in Indian society. But when I was growing up, I mean, I was you know just the daughter of my parents. My parents do happen to be upper caste Brahmins, um, but once again, you know, I mean, I I went to a school where none of us were really aware of each other's caste till the Mandal Commission thing actually happened, um, and I'm not. Of a, from a very religious family, and I certainly was not very religious growing up, so I wasn't particularly um, influenced by uh, the sort of traditional considerations. I mean, my life was just literature when I was growing up. So I lived in my own cocoon within society. When you were going to school with your classmates, were they like you or from other castes and classes? They were uh, all different castes. And economically... We were probably all about the same as well. And, uh, you know, it was a very large school in Delhi. And a lot of my classmates, um, like myself, have ended up abroad, living somewhere else. And none of us actually made it because our parents were wealthy and could afford to send us. We all had to find our own way of getting out of the country, getting scholarships or getting jobs or, or working our way through university to, to sort of get here. Why have you chosen to live outside of India? Um, I think part part of the reason was actually educational. When I was, uh, at that time in India, the only um, professions that were really looked upon with any respectability was being an engineer or a doctor. And my heart was really in the humanities. But um, if you wanted to study philosophy and stuff like that was not particularly well regarded. And that's what I wanted to do. And I wanted to go and study somewhere where it would have some respect. And uh, that motivated me to a great deal. I also used to read a lot as a kid, and I wanted to see what the rest of the world was about. Um, I wanted to experience it and know what it was like. And uh, I never, I'm extremely fond of India, and I feel Indian to the bone, but even when I was growing up in India, I always felt that I was a citizen of the world, and, uh, and still do. Now, approximately one out of every five people in the world live in India. What do you see as the future of your country? Incredibly bright and better than it's ever been, actually. I think that a lot of significant economic changes have taken place in the past 10 years, and it's really beginning to trickle down to the common man. People have a lot more money, but also more facilities and a different way of looking at things. And some of the fatalism that I think pulled Indians back you know, they'd say, oh, this is just going to happen and we can't do anything about our future. That has gone away. Uh, young people, even if they come from a very poor background, believe that they can make an effort and make, you know, have a different life than, than save, you know, their families. And they do. And I think there's a lot of hope in India at the moment, and it's really wonderful to see every time I go back. Oh, by the way, Sar, tell us about some of your other projects and the books that you're working on. At the moment, I ha- I'm working on a book that is set in New York and Paris about writers. Almost all the characters in the book are writers, and the main character is a writer who's, um, a, who's 75 years old, who's coming towards the end of his life and is reflecting back on both his life and his writing and the connection between 
literature and life. And um, my my first book actually was set in the voice of a gay white man. Um, so I guess one of the things, one of my, in, in terms of very long term, my writing project, so to speak, with a capital P, is to write in very many different voices and uh, take on the mantle of different genders and races and, and, and so on when I write. Um, I find that very exciting. When people read your voices and hear your voices like a gay white man, mm -hmm. do they feel that you speak for them? Um, it's interesting because, you know, from, from when, I, when I wrote that book, I had readings in, in gay men's bookstores and gay men's magazines reviewed it, and gay men would tell me what they thought about it, and they actually really enjoyed the book. And actually, people asked me if that was autobiographical as well. <laughs> so, um, I, I, you know, that's always interesting being a writer. I think uh, most people think that somehow you're connected directly in some way to the story. Um, and sometimes, you know, when, the, when it's it fits your ethnic background, then it's easier to ask that question, but one gets asked that all the time. I think one can, as a as somebody who writes, you can one can imagine lots of different things that are not directly oneself, because I think there is a component to human experience that is transcendental, and, um, and the rest is, uh, you know, careful observation of the details. Tell us where you studied, where you uh, learned about philosophy. Um, I studied at Harvard. I moved. Um, I finished high school in India, and uh, and then came to the United States and uh, studied political theory uh, for four years. And then I worked in New York in finance. And where's your home now? Uh, New York City. Abba the Waysar, I want to thank you very much for being with us on Radio Curious. And before we close, can you tell us about an interesting book that you've read lately? Yes, I read uh, Purple Hibiscus by Chimamanda um, Ngozi, I don't know how to pronounce her middle name, Adichie. And it's set in Nigeria, and it's uh, in the voice of a young girl. Um, and it's about her family. And it's um, a magnificent book that makes you really feel um, her environment. And I felt like I was you know, there with her, um, and I've never been to Nigeria, and I've never been to anything other than Morocco in Africa. Uh, but I really love that book, and I can't wait for whatever book she'll come out with next. Oh, by the way, Sar, thank you very much for joining us on Radio Curious. Thank you, Barry. Abba Dewaysar is the author of Baby G. The book she recommends is Purple Hibiscus by Chimimanda Ngoze Adichie. Copies of this and other editions of Radio Curious can be found on our website, www.radiocurious.org. There are over 750 archives on our website, radiocurious.org. And I'm honored to tell you that Radio Curious is now part of the collection at the Library of Congress. We appreciate your cards, ideas, and letters, and do enjoy hearing from you. The email is curious at radiocurious.org. The postal address is 700 West Smith Street, Ukiah, California, 95482. The phone is 707 621-5075. Ignacio Ayala is the assistant producer. I'm host and producer Barry Vogel. Thank you for listening.